0: Hello everyone! In this episode, we're narrowing our focus down to one specific element. Though, is it really narrowing our focus if it's literally everywhere on and in our planet? Today's topic is sulfur, and while it might not be an element that's at the forefront of our brains on a daily basis, I know I think about oxygen, hydrogen, or even aluminum more than I think about sulfur, it turns out that we wouldn't be here today without it. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science Podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. The first things that come to mind when I think about sulfur are rotten eggs, hot springs, and that one time I took a shower in Iceland. The thing all these have in common is that distinctive smell that kind of makes your nose crinkle a bit, and either tells you to immediately throw out the eggs, or just ignore it because you're standing in an Icelandic shower washing your hair with geothermal water, and that's pretty dang cool. Today's guest is Jesse Walters, a geologist who studies sulfur, and he's here to tell us about what's up with this fun element of our planet. Jesse and I met in grad school in Maine, but he has since moved across the Atlantic to continue his studies in Germany. He's traveled all around the world looking at rocks and spends a lot of his time thinking about what sulfur might be doing as it gets sucked down into the earth. So Jesse, what do you do and what are you researching?
1: I study the element sulfur and the chemical reactions that take place between sulfur and other elements in the deep earth. And I study sulfur primarily in the context of plate tectonics. So the jumbling and reshuffling around of Earth's plates and the continents on them and how that reorganizes sulfur and, and other elements in the crust and in the atmosphere and the different parts of the Earth.
0: What made you want to go into geology?
1: I've wanted to be a geologist for longer than I can remember, actually. I was like a little kid and I'm like, I want to be a geochemist. <laughs> and I, I don't really remember when it started. Because my parents said it started like really early, like four years old. Nice. Um, but I've always had a fascination with the natural world. And I wanted to know how nature functioned. And how you could get such a great variety of rocks and minerals and landforms and environments. Because I spent a lot of time outside growing up. And I would go camping and with my father a lot and hiking. And I grew up in a very rural area. So there wasn't really much else to do. And I got to see a lot of different kinds of environments. And I just had tons of questions about it.
0: Yeah, what's it like in Germany right now?
1: The geology of Germany is actually pretty cool. A lot of it's really old. It is, you know, 300, 400, 500 million years. For example, on the border with Switzerland in the Jura Mountains, that's where we get the word Jurassic from.
0: Oh, cool. Um,
1: So that's like the type locality for the Jurassic Rocks. Oh, neat. And in Europe, extending from France all the way into the Czech Republic was like a continental collision zone. And there were mountains here like the Himalaya, but now they're all worn away. Uh And we only get to see the, the remnants of those.
0: So what is sulfur? What does it do? And why should we care about it?
1: Well, I think a better question is why shouldn't we care about sulfur? Because neither of us would be here to talk about it if sulfur didn't exist. Sulfur is unique in its chemistry. It reacts with pretty much all elements except the noble gases, which don't really react with anything. So almost everywhere on the periodic table, you can find some kind of compound with sulfur Because it is so chemically unique and bonds so easily with so many different elements, it's important in all spheres of the earth. It's a critical macronutrient in all living cells, in you, in me, in cyanobacteria, in dolphins, it doesn't matter. They've all got sulfur. And it's actually like the seventh through eighth most uh, abundant element in the human body by weight. Oh, wow. And I, I learned recently the sulfur is in keratin. And it actually the the sulfur bond, the sulfur-sulfur bond in keratin is what gives strength to hair and feathers. Um, so it's extremely important. Like life would not exist without sulfur. And I can't imagine uh, something more important than that. <laughs> and it's an element that's been known to humanity for a really long time. It's mentioned even in the Odyssey and in the Torah when that was translated into you know what we know is the old testament and in, in the english translations of the bible it was it became brimstone so when you hear brimstone that's actually sulfur and it's essential also in a lot of uh, industrial applications for example it it was used in gunpowder and matches and it's it has to be produced from nature in some way there is mining of volcanic sulfur that was a source for a long time Last summer, I went to the island of Milos in Greece, and that's where the ancient Mediterranean world got most of its sulfur, which is a volcanic vent and springs.
0: Jesse also mentioned that today, in addition to mining, we actually also get a lot of sulfur from fossil fuels. As fossil fuels are refined into things like gas, sulfur is pulled out of them and then turned into sulfuric acid, which is then used in things like batteries or fertilizers. So take us on the journey of sulfur. What would it be like to live the life of a sulfur molecule?
1: Well, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty interesting because it's really in like all of the Earth. And the Earth's core, which is, you know, there's an outer and inner core, and an outer kind of liquid metal core and an inner core, is where a lot of Earth's metals went into, like nickel and iron and things like that. But sulfur likes metal, <laughs> It likes nickel, it likes iron, it forms minerals with them. So it's thought that 90 percent of Earth's sulfur was actually locked away when the core formed. That 10 percent that's left over is distributed all throughout the Earth. So there's some um, in the, the mantle that's you know spread out in little sulfide minerals here and there. it's also in the surface, it's in the atmosphere, it's in the water, it's obviously in plants and animals. The largest reservoir of sulfur. So the largest, like host of sulfur on Earth's surface is actually the ocean. And the thing is, the oceans are just so large and sulfur-rich. You if we're thinking about taking a journey as a sulfur atom, if you end up in the ocean, the residence time of a sulfur atom in the ocean is twelve to twenty million years. There's just so much sulfur, and it takes so long for it to get out of the ocean because it's just so vast that it's stuck in there for millions and millions of years.
0: How does sulfur get out of the ocean?
1: Well, first it has to get into the ocean. So it's, it's introduced to the ocean through mixing with sulfur in the atmosphere, inputs from rivers, which ultimately get it from uh, weathering of rocks or, well, nowadays, like uh, pollution as well contributes uh, sulfur. There are volcanic releases of sulfur into the sea or into the atmosphere, and then it goes into the sea. And it turns out the largest flux of sulfur out of the sea is actually just in sea spray. But we typically don't think about that as geologists because it like 99% of it returns to the sea within hours to days. (laughs) (laughs) But if you are on the coast, you're spraying the land with, uh, with sulfur. (laughs) But the main way we get sulfur out of the ocean is that It's used by bacteria that live mostly in the upper few centimeters of the sediment sludge on the seafloor. And that sulfur then leaves the bacteria and it bonds with iron to form the mineral pyrite, also known as fool's gold. A lot of that actually just goes back into the ocean, but a certain amount of it stays behind.
0: Okay, wait. So there are bacteria living on the ocean floor whose poop turns into fool's gold? What? Well... It's more like the bacteria and its bestie iron go to a rave, dance the night away to my chemical romance, and spur on a reaction that turns into fool's gold. But either way, the world is a pretty rad place. And this chemical reaction party produces around 5 million tons of fool's gold every year. Scientists also think that this process is what helped turn the toxic-for-us ball of early Earth into the happy, life-rich ball that it is today.
1: Another important process that happens occasionally through Earth's history is the formation of evaporites. So you want an area that is just below sea level and then that area to get continuously reflooded with seawater. So you have to have just the right tectonic environment for this to happen because if it only gets flooded once, then you don't leave much behind. So you want it to be continual and you have to maintain that for millions of years potentially. And there are places on Earth where there are huge evaporate deposits. So we know this happens. It's like the Dead Sea. You know, all this water goes in, and then the water goes into the air, and it leaves behind the stuff that was dissolved in it. And that is salt, obviously, is one thing. But also, it leaves behind sulfur minerals like gypsum and barite. So those are often associated uh, with these evaporite deposits. And you might have layers of salt and then layers of sulfate minerals and then layers of salt and so on. But then eventually you have to get the sulfur you know, totally removed from this system. And that is through the process of plate tectonics. You have this sulfur now sitting either and evaporates or having been removed by bacteria and that gets subducted. So the oceanic plate might sink beneath another oceanic plate or beneath a continent. And it carries the sulfur down into the earth with it. And this is the area that I actually study. So, you know, how do you exchange sulfur between earth's surface and the interior of the earth? And that's actually something we don't really understand. There's two ways it could go. is the sulfur just stays in that subducting oceanic crust, and uh, eventually it breaks off and sinks into the deep earth to be remelted and reincorporated inside the earth. The other option is that as that plate is sinking into the earth, that sulfur gets released. So as rocks are descending into the earth, the pressure is changing, the temperature is changing, and those drive mineral reactions. For example, most of the water in the downgoing plate is lost because water-bearing minerals become unstable and they release all their water. And it's thought that these could also release sulfur as well, but we don't know how much. And eventually, though, that sulfur would make its way out of things like volcanoes. So volcanoes associated with subduction zones, like the ones in the Pacific Northwest and and all around the Ring of Fire, Japan, um, New Guinea, Indonesia, all of those pump out tons and tons of sulfur. And we know that some of that has to come from the downgoing plate, but we don't know really like what portion of that is. So so there's a cycle where if you're a sulfur atom, you keep going between Earth's surface and an interior and and round and round.
0: And then maybe at some point get stuck in the mantle and then it's going to be a really long time before you come back.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, each of these processes have a, a characteristic like time scale associated with it. And even though it might eventually make it back to where it started, some of these processes take significantly longer than others. You know, a sulfur atom moving down a river is weeks, whereas in the ocean, it's 12 million years, potentially more. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And the inside of the earth, it's like a billion years or something like that. We don't really know. But the journey is long and (laughs) cyclical.
0: (laughs) So what are the three coolest places you've been for the sake of geology?
1: That's really hard. I gave
0: you Um, three. A lot of times I only give people one, but I was like, Jazzy's not going to be able to pick one. (laughs) So I gave you three. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs)
1: Um, Well, the first place I ever went for fieldwork was Nepal. Fieldwork outside the U.S. anyway. It was exciting, not just because it was my first time leaving the country, but because also it was just so beautiful there. And you feel so small when you you crane your neck to look up at the peak of a mountain and you feel like you can't crane your neck anymore, but it keeps going up. And it's just so different from anywhere else on the planet. Similarly, I I really enjoyed Scandinavia. Also uh, a big part of that is the amazing glacial features. (laughs) So there's nothing quite like driving through a a fjord and uh, the rocks there are also just world-class. They're, they're amazing rocks. Again, you're looking at the roots of what at one time was himalaya size mountain, and you get to see the, the inner workings. And they're so well displayed because they've all been uh, eroded by the glaciers.
0: I think and you've been hanging out with us ice folks a little bit too long.
1: <laughs> well, ice, once it's gone, it, it does a good job of bringing the rocks to where you can see them. <laughs> also, Oman... And that place was really cool, not just because it was neat going to the Middle East, into a very desert region, but also the country has massive mountains. And these mountains are, at least part of them, are a fragment of the ocean floor that has been thrust up onto a continent where we can now see it. So even if you hop in a submarine and you go down to the sea floor, you're just seeing the top of it but this whole thing has been rotated also. So you can walk all the way from the surface of the ocean into the mantle. So you get to see in some of these rare places the inside of the earth, and and it takes a very special tectonic environment to allow that to happen. And some of what we know the most about the earth's mantle comes from these places.
0: Okay, I have a listener question for you today. Why does sulfur smell bad?
1: So this is super interesting. It was something I've wondered about for a while. And it's a little bit outside of my area of expertise. And it turns out that we don't really know how smells are created. <laughs> like, you know, there's receptors in your nose and they accept certain things. But like, why are something stinky? Why does something smell good? Why does something not smell at all? Well, the sulfur that's, not all sulfur is stinky. The type of sulfur that's stinky is when it bonds with hydrogen to form hydrogen sulfide, which is H2S. Now, if you do that same kind of molecule, but get rid of the S and put an O, you have water. Um, (laughs) So like, why does water have no smell, but the very similar molecule have uh, such a bad smell? And there's also other forms of sulfur in various molecules called thiols that are really stinky. And uh, it's what makes skunk spray stinky and uh, flatulence.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We can say of the podcast, it's fine.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But also, uh, thiols are what make coffee smell.
0: Whoa.
1: So, I mean, it's not all bad, except I, I hate coffee and I don't like the smell of it.
0: Maybe it's just because you've been around sulfur so much.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I didn't like it before that. It turns out that the human nose is like super sensitive to these sulfur compounds. It's actually more sensitive to that than I think any other kind of smell at all. Our nose can smell files at concentrations as low as a few parts per billion. So imagine you have a billion atoms of air and only two of them or or a thiol or hydrogen sulfide, somehow our nose can smell those two atoms. It's like dog level, like smelling sensitivity almost, you know? So I, I read that it's potentially an evolutionary mechanism since thiols are produced from some rotting foods, but also that hydrogen sulfide gas is poisonous. And it's interesting that the reason we can actually smell them so well has finally been discovered. And it's that there's copper nanoparticles in the receptors in our noses. Remember I said earlier these elements that are sulfur loving? Well, copper is like the main one. And and that's the same way that sulfur gets distributed in the earth is the attraction of these metals to sulfur. So where sulfur goes, the metals follow. That's how I form platinum deposits. That's where you form copper deposits, gold deposits. And it turns out the same mechanism that drives these major parts of sulfur's geochemical cycle are also what allow us to smell it. Hmm. So it's being attracted to these copper atoms or in our nose for some reason. (laughs)
0: Well, uh, Jesse is my main source of geology knowledge on social media. Do you want to share your social media with the listeners as well?
1: Yeah, you can follow me on, uh, I'm mostly on Instagram because I like posting cool pictures of rocks. Um, So you can find me at the GeoJesse. And I also have a website, which is geojesse.weebly.com, which you can see some of the pictures that I've taken in the field and some information about the research that I do.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. This was great. I can't wait to share all of this sulfur knowledge with the listeners.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, fun getting to share all this information.
0: And now for our episode recap. Sulfur is an element that likes to interact with a lot of other elements in our world. Hydrogen, metals, you name it, and it probably does something with sulfur. Sulfur is all around us in the air and water and is even inside of us, giving strength to our hair, skin, and proteins throughout our body. It's also in, and I guess comes out of, bacteria in the ocean floor. When this sulfur bonds with iron, it turns into minerals like fool's gold and can get sucked down inside the Earth when that ocean floor tectonic plate travels under other plates moving around our planet. At this point in the cycle, we're not entirely sure what happens to that sulfur, but that is what Jesse is looking to discover. It could stay down inside the Earth, or it could get shot back up to the surface through volcanoes like the ones around the Pacific Ocean. If it does journey out of a volcano, then it could make its way to our noses, where we'll smell even the tiniest concentrations of it. So the next time you get a whiff of a skunk, a rotten egg, a hot spring, or, yes, even a fart, you can think about where those sulfur atoms might have been in the past. It might have been millions of years ago, but who knows? Maybe you just inhaled something that swirled around in the mantle of our planet. If you want to ask me or my guests a question, you can head on over to patreon.com slash goforthinscience. For just a dollar a month, you can help support the creation of this podcast and be part of the inside circle of rad folks who help me figure out what my episodes will be about. For more information on bacteria parties in the ocean floor, you can check out Joanna Thiel's 2019 scientific paper, Pyrite Formation from Iron Sulfide and Hydrogen Sulfide is Mediated Through Microbial Redox Activity. A link to this paper will be on my website, goforthinscience.com podcast. Thanks for listening.